0: This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Basically. Again, we have more people signing up to Headstuff Plus, which I'm so grateful for. You really help to support me and the show and make sure that we can keep going and that I can keep making episodes. And that that really means a lot to me. Genuinely. So I want to thank, thank some people personally today and I'm going to name some uh, names that are uh, of, of my personal supporters who have subscribed to Headstuff Plus. Quiva Rafter, thank you. Deirdre Rogers, Elaine Finn, Rachel McKenna, Emma Peavoy, thank you so much. Siobhan Gordon, Neve Harkin, Claire Smith and Owen Flaherty, thank you all so very much. Today's episode is one that I've never had more demand for this episode well actually I've never had more questions for a guest than I have for this episode. With me in studio is Joanna Fortune and we actually get to answer all of your questions. So stay tuned and Joanna thank you so much for joining me in studio. I have never had a uh, I've never had a guest in for whom I have had so many questions <laughs> sent to me. I'm I imagine this is something that's typical in your life with the stuff you do on news talk and even yeah. your own Instagram. Uh Do you want to tell the listeners who haven't sent questions in who you are, what you do and yeah. And we'll start there.
0: Yeah, I'm a psychotherapist. I specialize in the parent-child relationship. And what that means is I work predominantly in a dyadic way, which is the parent and the child together in the room. And that could be from pregnancy right the way up to young adulthood, which these days is 23 years old, you know, young oh, adulthood. Wow. I remember reading a thing somewhere that said you could be a young adult up to the age of 30. But I figured if you thought that at 30, that was part of the issue. So um, you could
1: have 23-year-old and their parent coming into the yeah, Yeah,
0: I mean, rarely with the dyadic piece with that, because often you'll start with adult one to one therapy. But yeah, there could well be a part where we say, look, maybe we'll invite at their permission, now of course, and their consent. We'll invite the key relationship in your life into the room and let's work with that. So that's really what I specialize in. I tend to do a lot of attachment work and trauma focused work. And I've been doing that for, oh, my goodness, over 20 years now.
1: Is it, a really, is it really satisfying? Like, Is it a gratifying job?
0: I, I think it is. I think there are times when, you know, like any job, you come out and you go, gosh, that went really well and I'm really pleased. And it's really not about I did well, it's that I can see somebody making progress, making connections, really integrating what we've been doing into their life. And then you feel like, OK, yes, but therapy isn't linear like that. It's not a sense of... This week was good and next week is good. And oh my goodness, now what's this? Because that's not the way it works. We have ups and downs in our life and the therapeutic relationship tends to mirror that, you know.
1: And do you find if when you have like in the dyadic therapy that sometimes one part of the dyad is making progress at a different pace to the other or like is it, Mm -hmm. it must be harder surely for children to integrate well, that,
0: yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, God, I don't even know if I've ever thought of it like that myself, that, you know, one person versus the other. Because when we're doing dyadic therapy, it's not that you or your parent or you or your child are the client. So it's the, 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 relationship. For the relationship. Exactly. Right, okay. So, you know, a relationship is between people. So one person can't move a relationship forward without the other person.
1: And do you work with kids who are like pre-verbal or?
0: Yeah, we can do. Now, a lot of that kind of therapy, we use particular dyadic therapies, like something like TheraPlay, which is an attachment focused, trauma focused dyadic therapy between parents and children. It's about doing communication, not speaking it, particularly with very young children. So it's not like people come in and sit in the room and we talk about it. We actually do it. And we're using very carefully selected mindful play, very particular activities that fit under developmental dimensions like structure and engagement and nurture and challenge. And what they basically mean when we talk about structure is a type of activity between you and your child that creates that sense of felt safety. You know, that sense of being safe in a relationship where Mm -hmm. it's not like windows and doors are locked safe, but I feel safe from the inside out. I can accept that there is somebody bigger, stronger, wiser, kind who's going to stop me in the situation, getting out of control in a kind and gentle way. So you can be firm, but gentle. Mm-hmm. And engagement is about shared joy.
1: And gosh, don't we all need that? Opportunities for shared joy in our life. And do you find that people come to you? Like, for, I'm just thinking about the listener listening to this now who has a child. Do people really come to you when there is an issue presenting itself? Or is this something that you would suggest for people to seek Only when there is issues like we have had Mark Smith, let's say, on and he was saying that, you know, not everyone needs therapy. No. Um, We don't need to pathologize normal anxieties. We're in a pandemic. The situation is abnormal. You're not abnormal. That for people like, is this something that you think everyone should do a bit of or only when there's issues presenting that need to be managed?
0: No, I don't. I would echo a lot of what you've quoted Mark as saying there, you know, that you know, a certain amount of anxiety is normal and healthy and that tends to be very context-specific anxiety. I am anxious about this thing at this time and when that passes, the anxiety goes too. It's more transient. It tends to be when anxiety is more pervasive. It's there more often than it's not. It's not context-specific. Sometimes we're worrying about worrying. You know, I don't know (laughs) what's behind this. And that's an over and above. So we tend to, that, that key phrase there, what's over and above, but that's very subjective, you know, because what's over and above for me might be very different to what's over and above for you. So again, when it comes to the parent-child piece, I would very much defer to the parent and say, well, look, you're the expert on your child. Are you concerned about this, whatever it is, behavior, pattern or symptom? Is this sudden, a marked change that you don't have a specific context for? And then, but you know, any therapist isn't going to give somebody therapy for therapy's sake. So even if somebody is coming to therapy within a few weeks, you could say, look, I don't think you need to be coming here. Yes. Okay. Every week, you know, Any therapist is going to do that. You're not going to have somebody coming to therapy for no reason. Now, that said, I, you know, sometimes I do therapeutic parenting work as well, where I'm not working with the child at all. I'm working solely with the parent and using very playful techniques and therapeutic parenting in that context. And so sometimes. So
1: like, sorry, teaching, like working with an adult. Yes. In how to parent.
0: Well, it's, yeah, in some ways, yes, but it's not about this kind of instructive how to parent. It's more about, you know, often when we react or snap or, you know, end up yelling, for example, or losing our temper with our children. By the time we do that, it's not because of what our children were doing or saying. It's because of what got activated in us by them doing or saying it. And therapeutic parenting is an opportunity to look inwards and then parent outwards what is getting activated and triggered in me and where do those triggers belong and spend time reflecting on those, looking at our own attachment relationships, looking at our own experience of being parented
1: Yes, and how that's
0: reactivated now in being a parent. So it's, it's much more about that and looking at playful and creative communication techniques, different ways of approaching the things that do tend to activate or trigger us or, you know, push our buttons might be more... Relatable phrase on that, yeah. yeah.
1: And what are the most frequent things that you you, you see coming through your doors? Like what are the th- things that people present with most frequently or the most common issues?
0: I would say anxiety is predominant at with a the, the child at the or well
1: both i think anxiety is really high
0: at the moment i think you know again we do have a very specific context for it you know we're a year into this pandemic and these pandemic conditions and some people have done really well i had a conversation with somebody i know recently who's a self-owning introvert who has said you know i have found this really helpful you know it, it's gone on a bit long and there are definitely aspects that i'd like to stop now but i have really enjoyed this time in and myself so i think we have to look as well that there are pros and there are cons but i think you know certainly in terms of the type of referrals coming in the type of queries coming in they're at a higher rate than typical Mm -hmm. and they're also very anxiety laden at the moment and it can be that our as parents were worried and anxious were stressed think about what parents are having to do at the moment you know we're having to Parent like we're not working, work like we're not parenting. Oh, and by the way, become a teacher with no notice.
1: Yeah. You know, it's an
0: awful lot of pressure. So I think that, you know, people are feeling the burden of that and are anxious. And of course, our young children take their you know, emotional and behavioural cues from us parents. So when we're wobbling, if they're having a little wobble of their own, they look at us and go, oh my goodness, it's even worse than I thought. You're wobbling too. Yes. So it can feel like a hot potato of tension tossing back and forth in the relationship. But anxiety is high. Sometimes it's also, I would call it parent-child harmony or disharmony. And that would be, especially with the older age group coming out of middle childhood, you know, middle childhood is that eight to 12. So kind of 10, 11, 12 into early to mid adolescence up to 15 can be just, I'm just not feeling connected with my child. Our relationship is really struggling. We're fighting a lot. There's a lot of tension and it
1: can be that reason And to come. In those situations, like are all of these problems that you see solvable? Oh yeah, I'm an
0: eternal optimist when it comes to anything like this. Yeah. I, I think, you know, um, things, that, things can always get better through strengthening and enhancing the relationship. So I would be a big cheerleader for that. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's a quick fix. And you know, you can't, it's like saying how how long is therapy is like saying how long is a piece of string. It really depends on the particular individual, the particular situation, how you're experiencing it, your relationship. And also the younger a child is coming to someone like me, by virtue of the fact that their life experience is shorter. You know, if you're five years old, there's five years that we're looking at. If you're 15 years old, there could be 10, 15 years of that. You know, so the older you are, it can take longer. But yeah, I would always say it's never too late and it's always worth doing.
1: And do they always need to be, so say, we'll take an example of like 12, 13 year old parent feels, I'm just not connecting to them. They're, we're fighting all the time. I'm having to be their teacher and their parent and their colleague in the house. And (laughs) it's a lot Does the child also, like, in that situation, what do you recommend? Like, does the child have to be on board with coming in to see you? Do they have to want it? Mm. Or is it like, mom's dragging me in here?
0: Well, sometimes it's a question of who's bringing who to the therapist, you know. Right, (laughs) okay. But I also think that, yeah, I I think I would say to parents if they ring me and go, look, we really need to do this, but I think I'm going to get some resistance. I would say it's your job to get them to come once and it's my job to get them to come back. Okay. Okay. That's fair. And I would also say, please don't pay them to come to me. Please oh don't God. bribe them to come to me, and and don't incentivize behavior. Like if you if you misbehave, we're not going to go see Joanna. Or if you misbehave, you're definitely going to see Joanna. Yeah. That therapy shouldn't be a consequence for behavior. Right. Okay. So I would look at it that way, and you know, but if a child, regardless of their age now, if they're coming, and I would always say. How do you know it's not for you until you give it a go? So if I have a child or a teenager and they're saying to me, I really don't want to be here, I will acknowledge and empathize with that and really respect it and say, okay, can we come to an arrangement, an agreement that you will come to see me for three weeks in a row? And if at the end of that three weeks, you're still feeling this is not for me, I don't want to be here, I will listen to you and I will g- feed that back to your parents and you won't have to come.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And how frequently does that happen? Or usually after three weeks, are they kind of willing?
0: Usually they're more willing. Yeah, usually. There will always be someone, and maybe I agree with them, by the way. Maybe I'm like, you're right. You don't need to be here and this isn't for you. And now we know that. Yeah. You know, it's not a feeling anymore. You've given it a go. You know, you've really been open to this and thank you for that. And I respect that this isn't for you. And it might be that it's not for you right now. Okay. And especially if it's come at the height of something. You know, something has happened. A big incident, a big experience, maybe something negative in school, maybe there's been bullying, maybe there's been a friendship problem and therapy was suggested in the moment. Okay, we have to go see the therapist. So then it's highly associated with that negative experience. Right, okay, yes. So it may be,
1: let's revisit this in a few months. When things have settled down. Exactly. Yeah. And do you find that well I guess I'm I'm aware that people have asked so many questions and I'm trying to I didn't even get to give you all of the questions that people asked because there were so many <laughs> and I'm trying to get a, a sense in my head of what those question topics were so that broadly speaking we can speak to the sort of stresses that people are feeling. Mm. Um do you there was also some questions around both parents feeling like do you generally work with one parent and a child or is it sometimes Two parents and a child, and how does that dynamic play out?
0: Oh gosh, it's well, it's either or or both. To be honest, Um, if 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 I'm doing something like theraplay or another dyadic therapy like DDP, which is dyadic developmental psychotherapy, I would like both parents involved.
1: So they both have the skill
0: exactly. So, but also that it's not falling on one parent. Yes, okay. You know that we don't say, well, you know, mum or dad does the emotional stuff only. Yes. You know, and also uh, children have different relationships with their parents, how they relate to one parent. It may well be different to how they relate to the other. And it's useful to look at both relationships with the child and bring those both into the work. So I like to work with both parents. If for whatever reason one parent cannot come or cannot come alternate weeks or whatever mm-hmm. it is with that kind of frequency, I will sit and say, OK, can we agree that with enough notice you could come once a month Or once every five weeks, so that you're still an active part of the treatment. I know I
1: had a question from a woman who is separated from her husband and feels the child needs therapy, but the relationship within the 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 marital, the divorced relationship is so broken down that one won't come, and so it's falling on her, and the behavioural problems are sort of being resolved in the therapy with her, but then when he spends time with the father, the things come back up. Which is a really tricky situation for someone to be oh, in. Oh, it's
0: really tricky and it's tricky for the child as well. Yeah. Because there's different sets of expectations and different types of responses to his behavior, depending on who I'm with. And it's very hard for children to hold two different kind of sets of rules in mind about the same thing. I often think this comes to when, you know, even taking it away from something as serious as that and an everyday thing, you know, when back when we could go to restaurants and stuff, you know, bringing a child to a restaurant or a cafe and saying, you know, you must sit at the table and you must do this and you must do that. But at home, you can have your food in your hand and walk around the house and that's fine. It's very difficult for children to hold two conflicting sets of rules about the one thing in mind. And that's what comes up for me when you say that, you know, mum is going to respond to me in this way and I know very much what she expects of me and how we're going to connect and work through difficult feelings I cannot anticipate with certainty or predict what that's going to be with my other parent. And that in itself is very anxiety provoking, especially for a young child. But also because mum and dad aren't on the same page and things might be very tense and fraught between them. I'm a child in the middle, like an emotional little sponge, soaking up all that emotional resonance, but not having the emotional fluency to be able to process that, make sense of it, make meaning of it. So instead, I act it out. For children, we have to understand that their overt behavior, the things that they do, it's not that they're trying to be difficult for us. They're having a difficulty. And that overt behavior is the best way they have to express that difficulty. And then us parents have to come in and make sense of that for
1: them. With them, like saying, yeah. I see that you're doing this and that means that you are having a difficult time because X, Y and Z.
0: Exactly. Like I maybe even take it to, you know, a child has a box of Legos and they're trying to get the lid off. OK, because they're tricky, right? Yeah. <laughs> Those lids, they're tricky. So a child's trying and trying and they give it a go and they, they're they at it a little while. And then you can see the frustration is building in them and they pick up the box and they throw it across the room in temper. If we come in and just go, don't throw your toys because you're throwing your toys, no more Legos for today. That child has not made any meaning of what happened to them from an emotional perspective. They got frustrated. Now you're taking away my Legos. So now I'm doubly frustrated. Yes. Whereas if we can come in and go, oh, my goodness, you were trying to get that lid off and it just wouldn't come. It was stuck and you tried and tried. You got so mad. You threw it across the room. And while saying that, I'm retrieving the box, loosening said lid subtly, returning it to my child and going, try now together. One, two, three. Oh, look at that. You got it. Now my child knows, Okay, I tried. I failed. That made me frustrated. And because I was frustrated, I threw the box across the room. But if I asked for help, I can gain mastery over this task. I can work it out. Right. Okay. And they're returned to where they start, but with a new option. Yes, which is much more. And now I understand that overt behavior, throwing the box, is underpinned by physical and emotional states and that's really really important but they can't do that on their own it is a lot on a parent isn't it like you really oh, have yeah.
1: to be, like what if you don't see That like, what if you're like dealing with another kid or trying to do the ironing or trying to work from home so you don't see that he's struggling with the lid and all you see is like a broken vase because he threw the Lego across the room. It's really hard for you to also. Really
0: hard. And that's why we have to stay out of a place of certainty and in a place of curiosity. So we have to stay out of that place of knowing what happened, but hold that position of seeking to better understand it. Okay. I see the broken vase and the Lego box, but I'm wondering what happened. How did it get there? You threw it? What's going on when you threw it? Something like that. Now, also, when there's a broken vase, you may well flip your own lid. We are human, by the way, us parents. You know, we're not a walking manual. (laughs) So there are definitely times when we're going to have our less than ideal parenting responses. And then we get it wrong. We might yell. We might snap. We might really give out. Everybody's upset. You know, there's tears, maybe ours, maybe theirs, maybe both. And there's that period of, you know, high tension. And then as we begin to ground ourselves and cool down, It is important that we go back and initiate repair. So what does that look like? You know, my feelings got really loud. I got so frustrated. You know, I walked in and saw the broken vase and it just made me so angry. And when I feel angry, my feelings get big and loud. And I yelled at you. And I'm sorry I did that. And I really wish I had done it differently. Can I get a do-over? This is what I wish I had said. And it doesn't mean I'm going to go fluffy. It's okay that you broke Mm -hmm. my vase. You know, explaining is not excusing, but it may allow me to make more meaning of what happened. But what I'm doing is initiating that repair. Okay. And that's always the responsibility of the parent, because when we, no matter what has happened, if we're kind of holding the place of I'm waiting for my child to come and be sorry and initiate repair with me, we're missing the point. The point of us taking responsibility for repair is that we're always reminding our children that our connection to them, our relationship with them is always more important than the conflict at hand. And I think that's a life lesson that children really need to grow up with, because then I can internalize that you could get mad with me. You could get angry with me. You can even yell at me. But I know you love me. I know we're connected and I know our relationship can
1: withstand this. Because you come back. Exactly. And you, yes. Does that mean that you can you still requ- like do, should you be requesting apologies? I don't know. Like if if there's a re- an apology due on your end for yelling is what if there's an apology due f- from the child i mean i'm not a parent so i don't really know yeah what i
0: asking. mean i you can definitely lead by positive example because you're also modeling appropriate behavior and responses and they might say yeah i'm sorry too and then you can kind of make up but depending on their age you know if a child is really young and oh yeah, okay. you say have you something to say to me every child on the planet knows it's sorry but do they mean it no
1: yeah So then it's just about your ego, whether or not... Yeah, (laughs)
0: what's the magic word? Please, thank you, sorry. It takes a while for that to mean something and to be authentic. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, by the way, because they're appropriate social norms and we want our children being able to say, please, thank you, and I'm sorry when it's needed. But if you're looking for some kind of genuine, authentic apology, yeah, you're going to spend years initiating and modelling that and then they will get it.
1: Okay. Come here a sec while I tell you about another podcast on this network. It's called What Would You Do If? Now it's a game that we've all kind of played while we've been driving with our friends. Like, what would you do if I spat at you right now? But these episodes are actually they're very entertaining, but they're also enlightening because they give you some information. So there's episodes on like, what would you do if a bear attacked you? What would you do if you got stuck in the lift? What would you do if a baby was choking? And it's kind of funny, back and forth, they talk about what they would do, but then they also give you information on, you know, sometimes what you should do. So check it out, it's on the network, and let me know what you think. This is What Would You Do If, the podcast to answer all of your What Would You Do If questions. It's Callum and Jess here and every week we look at how we'd handle different situations before finding out what you should do if you're in them. So far we've looked at What would you do if you saw someone stealing A bear attacked you The baby started choking You were stuck in a lift You can hear those episodes and loads more on headstuffpodcast.com with a new one every Monday. Should I move on to some of the questions? Yeah,
0: let's. There's quite a few. So there's so many.
1: <laughs> okay, um, we'll start with Siobhan. I have a question for Joanna. I have a very anxious eight-year-old girl. We have tears at many nights saying she can't cope with any more lockdown. She's missing her nana particularly but also school. She feels that it's unfair and I can't give her any certainty as to when things are going to get easier. Her four-year-old sister is less affected by it all but I do feel that she's regressing too. She's doing some baby talk. We're both working from home. It's difficult dealing with the schooling, working, parenting. How do I help her live with the uncertainty or lack of control over her life?
0: Oh, I just think this is echoing so much that so many of us are experiencing. I want so the answer from myself. Yeah, it's so relatable. <laughs> Yeah, and I also think in the midst of this, you have a very wise little girl who is able to let you know, "I'm not doing well with this. Yeah, I'm not coping, and there are really specific reasons here that I'm not coping." So, you know, she's she's wise and she understands. She's missing her nana, and she's also missing school. Do you know what's interesting about this is the difference between the four year old and the eight year old's coping? Because one of the th- like, if we'd been having this conversation this time last year when lockdown was new. Still a bit of a novelty and we were full sure we were looking at six to eight weeks, maybe worst case scenario, three months of this yeah. and then we would be back to life as we know it. We would ha- be having a very different conversation about it. And what we were seeing early on is that very young children under seven years old, they're their important hub of social development is parents and siblings okay so they tended to do quite well in these early stages they had all this increased time with parents and siblings all of their emotional and social needs were being met and they were doing well not saying perfect that they weren't missing grandparents and all of that but mostly they were doing well the age group that has always been most affected by lockdown, is middle childhood, 8 to 12 years, up to early to mid-adolescence, up to 15. Because at that stage um, of development, the important hub of social development is definitely not your parents and siblings. It's Correct. your peer group. Okay. And you're being denied access to your peer group for now what has been, yes, there's been some on and off, you know, relaxed restrictions, but then return to restrictions. So we're talking about a year now. Mm-hmm. So when we make significant changes, to how our children socialize, interact with their peers, how they play. Of course, there's going to be a significant impact on them as a result of that. And that's really what we're looking at now. So you're saying, you know, tearfulness and especially I'm interested it's at nighttime, you know, when we're winding down and that tends to be when the bubbling feelings that have been simmering all day are going to come up. Less distractions. And also she's giving you context because I miss my nana. OK, and, you know, I'm, I'm missing school and it feels unfair. And that really jumped out at me as well, because, you know, in that middle childhood stage, you know, there's a pronounced sense of fairness and justice, what's fair and what's not fair, usually as it relates to them now. But, you know, they're really focused on that. And one of the best things that, that children need to grow up in a healthy and happy way is calm, clear, consistent predictability. The very thing we can't give them. Yeah. You know, so I think she's having a struggle. And she's having a difficulty because the situation is difficult. There is context to this here. And, you know, I'm also hearing that, you know, as, as parents, you're feeling the stress and the burden as well. So actually, as a family, there is struggle here. This isn't all on this eight-year-old. You know, this is no, a family struggle.
1: i say it's a lot of families can relate to this.
0: Uh, Yeah, totally. No, I think if you come to her, Siobhan, and just say to her, really accept her experience and say, you're right, it is unfair. I really wish I could tell you when things are definitely going to happen, but I can't. And I don't want to lie to you or, you know, give you misinformation either. But what I am going to do is that every day I'm going to check in with you. And as best I know. I'm going to explain to you what's going on and keep that developmentally appropriate. Of course, you're not going to flood her with loads of figures and numbers, (laughs) but you're just going to say, you know, there are a lot of people working really hard and they're letting us know that more and more people are getting vaccinated and that's really good news. And so you're highlighting what people are doing proactively to get us back. And schools are returning on whatever date at eight. She's probably back now this week, maybe, Maybe depending if it's second or third class. It could be next week. But you know that you're going back to school and... Talk about things getting back on track at home. I would say make sure that you're doing play together as a family for a chunk of time every single day and keep that very relational, you know, not prop based. So it's just you yourself. And let's, for example, because you've got a four year old, so I'm going to think of things you can do as a family. Take um, a big blanket or simply a duvet cover everybody holds a little piece of it and put a balloon, a blown up balloon into the middle and then call out one person's name at a time and you all tilt and drop the blanket to send the balloon to that person and then pick someone else's name and send it to them and so forth. And then you're going to play hot potato, cold potato, keeping the balloon on the blanket. When you say hot potato, you make, you know, make it go really high and fast up in the air and cold potato, you barely wobble it. So you're going up and coming down and going up and coming down and you're doing that as a family. And then what you could also do is get rid of the balloon for a while everybody sit down and rest that blanket on your take your shoes off just your feet mix up your feet underneath and take turns leaning in and squeezing a foot and guessing whose foot it is so you're getting some nice touch you're all playing together all you've needed is a balloon and a blanket because then get rid of the blanket take the balloon and work together to keep the balloon up in the air and you can structure that by saying use the palm of your hand use your pointer use your thumb use your pinky whatever it might be, to keep the balloon up in the air. And you'll easily get a chunk of time just laughing and playing. And the reason I keep highlighting the laughing piece is because laughter is a great way to release residual tension in the body. So making sure you do play like that before bed so that I'm not going to bed with that bubbling tension.
1: Yeah, and that sounds, I mean, it's the picture that you paint there is one of such joy. And I'm sure that it's hard for parents who have been, you know, Working all day and doing homeschooling to think, okay, now I have to do a bunch of playtime. But, you know. I think if, if what you're saying is true, they're going to see the benefits and of they it, and, feel not it having, themselves. and not having a stressful bedtime, which is a much happier way Absolutely. to go Absolutely. To and too.
0: even 15 minutes a day, you know, it's it 15 minutes. Obviously, I talk about 15 minutes in the books and that, but it's not like it's a magic number. What it is is consistent and predictable. If you've got a small window of time, but you have that window every single day, then you become very reliable and predictable. And I can anticipate with certainty that we're going to play like this every day before bed and I'm waiting for it and then I'm right because it comes. But there is a benefit for us adults as well. You know, we tend to mistakenly see that play is something, especially in Western society, that belongs in the realm of childhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as serious adults, we can't be wasting time with that. Actually, all of our lives will benefit from more play, particularly at the moment. So it's, as parents, you'll enjoy this genuinely yourself and as much. The other thing you could do, especially because they're they're little, and you can do this with older kids too, is make a laughter puddle on the floor. Now that isn't kind of a pee yourself laughing <laughs> thing because it does sound a bit like that. But lie on the floor yourself first. And then have her rest her head on your tummy, and then have the four-year-old rest her head on your eight-year-old's tummy, and then the other parent rest their head on someone else's tummy. And the first person starts to laugh. At first, it's going to be a contrived, forced laugh, but even just hearing yourself do that becomes a genuine laugh. The next person, their head is moving because your tummy's moving with laughter. They pick up the laugh. They start laughing the other person and the other person and you're all in this little puddle on the floor laughing. The best type of contagion.
1: (laughs) Exactly. exactly. (laughs) And this is how COVID spreads. Um, I'll move on to Laura's question. Um, My 13 year old has slowly lost his close group of friends since the summer. He was trying to come Oh, he was trying, coming up to Christmas, to make new friends in school, but it didn't really work. He found it hard since starting secondary school two years ago to make good friends. He's still quite immature, can be a bit much for kids, kids his own age. He's desperately lonely at the moment. He has one friend to play online with, but that's it. He can't meet this boy as he lives too far away. How can I make him feel good about himself and prepare him for going back to school to try to make new friends? My heart is broken for him.
0: Ah, the poor kid and poor parent as well, really worrying. And, you know, just doing the sums here, he's 13, but he's two years in secondary school. So he. I'm guessing he might have been quite young mm-hmm. starting secondary school. And I mean, chronologically young, never mind you're saying he's quite immature, so also emotionally young. And that's a really big transition to make. You know, we underestimate that, that move from primary school into secondary school. And, you know, so I'm thinking second year, but a lot of his time in secondary school has been affected by this pandemic. And that's really in- influenced how that age group are able to develop new friendships, new relationships, and sustain them because they're only seeing each other and then they're not. Mm-hmm. And if I was already finding that difficult, then I haven't had the time to kind of bed down those relationships before I've been at home again. And while, look, virtual interaction has been a great substitute and goodness knows we've all relied on it during this pandemic in and of itself it cannot replicate in-person yeah. peer relationship it just can't so while you look and i would certainly let him you know encourage him to be playing online with his friends because he has that connection it's not the same it's not the same as meeting and teenagers really need that in-person peer interaction. Um, they really, really do need that. So when you're asking Laura, look, how can I make him feel good about himself? You can't. You can't make him feel good, but you can sit with him. I think as parents, we have to be really careful. And I what I'm about to say Sounds so counterintuitive, because as a parent, if your child is struggling, every fiber in your being, you just want to jump in and fix that and make it better. But I'm going to ask you to avoid a fix or change agenda here, because if we jump in and rescue our kids from their struggles, from the difficult times they're having, they never learn how to master those tension-rousing experiences. They never learn that they can withstand those difficult times and work through them themselves i'm not saying abandon him now and leave him on his own but if you can bear witness to that with him and stay with him in those difficult feelings using your acceptance and empathy and really wondering you know in as therapists we don't really ask people questions because you get yes no i don't know we wonder so you know wonder Wonder with this, you know. Wonder what it's like for him when you say he's desperately lonely. Has he told you he's lonely, or are you you know this by looking at him and you're thinking he must be lonely? Be curious about that, you know. Really sit with him and wonder how he's feeling. How has lockdown been for him? Do you
1: mean uh, like vocally say, "I wonder how you're feeling"? I wonder. You know, and it's
0: it's opportunistic at the moment because you are. You know, he will be going back to school if not now in the next few weeks. Um, So you could actually sit with him and say, look, you are going back to school and I'm wondering how you feel about that. You know, it's okay if you have positive feelings and negative feelings. You know, very often we have both and it can be a bit mixed up and confusing. You know, I'm here to listen. And to help you through that. And is there after, I think, when our young people are sitting with us and they're telling us, yeah, I'm worried about this or that. Again, avoid that fix or change agenda, but reflect back what you've heard. Okay, so look, you're worried about X, Y and Z. It allows them to say, yeah, you're right or no, that's not what I meant. And to clarify and then ask that important question. Is there anything that I could do to help with this? Because then they could say, actually, yes, I do need your help or no, it's okay, I'll work it out.
1: Okay, and And, if they say they need your help but they don't know, they want you to help, but they can't tell you what they need. Is it okay to be fix or change in that situation then?
0: I would make suggestions. Okay. I would say, okay, now let's see what I could do. Here's the problem. Okay. You don't know what you need. If this was me, if I was having this problem, here's what I think might help me. And see, they go, oh no, no, I don't want to do that. Don't do that. Or, oh, okay, I could try that. So you're starting it with yourself. So I'm not telling you.
1: Okay, so this is what, what I would what you need do. it's
0: what I would do and then you could make some suggestions and for example you know with friends in secondary school and I think you know there's an awful lot anyone who went into first year this year by the way is going to have experienced this they've barely been in school yeah and it's been a new experience in and of itself so if there's a way of them of him becoming more actively involved in the school community that could be joining a club a group in school you know that he's going to be mixing with kids who have shared interest to him and um, if it's something that you're really worried about in terms of Of it affecting his mental well being. You know, reach out to the school's guidance counselor, flag to them look. I'm a little concerned. He hasn't really gelled and settled. He hasn't developed friendships. Can you keep an eye and let me know, am I worried for no reason or is there a good reason for my worry and what can I do to help? So, you know, do reach out to the school community if it's something that you're thinking, No, oh, this is, you know, because loneliness is a huge side effect of this pandemic as well, but often it gets overlooked mm-hmm. in terms of its impact on mental health and well-being. So if you're concerned about that, I would reach out to the school as well. But I think, you know, um, there isn't a whole lot in here that tells me about the history of his friendships did he have friends in primary school or is this something that's been an ongoing concern for him so i would just kind of you know exactly like i'm saying be available to him you know, do a lot of reflecting, get outside, you know, as well, really get him outside, especially if his main form of interacting with friends is on computer games. Make sure that you're getting out with him, even if it's you saying to him, look, will you keep me company on a walk? Like yeah. he's doing you the favor, Before, Yeah. get him involved even in meal prep because it's a sensory nurture nurturing activity, you know, and again, it's something to do in an interactive way relational way let's make a dinner or a nice dessert together get him involved in things in the house and the family get outside it changes the environment changes the field of vision that can reset the brain and get curious about how he has experienced school and how he's anticipating going back and be available to help him in any way he needs you to
1: thank you so much emily my question relates to kids and tv time so there's only one real screen my kids are six and four one is in senior infants one is in preschool they watch about an hour to an hour and a half of TV every day it's an increase of their usual amount since school has been closed Um, they used to do Friday film night but now they watch a film at least twice a week so their standards are slipping she says we do all the other activities I know you would want Play-Doh magnetiles Lego go to the play park we do small world play cooking board games colouring reading unstructured time bath time water play my question is, how damaging is this 90 minutes of screen time? I know they're young. She seems to be doing all the things. She's like, doing so much. That's not, a, 90 minutes is hardly an no, issue. No, I'm, is I'm going to say, Emily,
0: give yourself way more credit than you currently are. you are doing it all of
1: Joanna's book. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Well done.
0: You're uh, doing great. Uh, no, you're doing loads and what I would say is this is such a great question because actually it's something I hear loads and loads about at the moment and I thought about this thing, it's an increase on their usual amount because there's nothing usual or typical about, about what this. we're living in. Yeah. So, extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures and the other thing I'd say to you, Emily is that not all screens are created equal OK, because if you have like, you know, in your family room, your sitting room, you've got a TV on, but there's also jigsaws and Legos and Magnetiles or whatever it is lying around. Our children will certainly watch a bit of TV, but then they'll, you know, drift over and do a bit of play and they might watch a bit more and do a bit more. It's not as intense as staring into a tablet on their lap, which is all consuming.
1: Yes, and okay. completely
0: sucks them in. They're and still in the room. It's like they're oblivious to everything else going on around. So Now, these children are quite young. So I'm going to say to you to do something um, a little bit creative with this because you're clearly having the parental guilts and, you know, parental guilts are so desperate, like because I could say, don't be guilty. You're like, well, I still feel it is that when they're sitting down. So an hour to an hour and a half. Look, everything pauses these days. So if it's unbroken, I'm going to suggest you use the pause button at different times. Get them to pause it and come and do something, even if it's only find me a tin of beans in the back of the press and give that to me it's a five minute interaction with you even if it's just you know why don't you wash the carrots or potatoes under the tap and then go back and watch your cartoon so they're getting that break in between the hour and a half but if you're saying no joanna i really need that hour to earn hour half uninterrupted because i have a zoom call to do for work and i really really need it then i'm going to say plan out a little scavenger hunt for the movie in question and because there's six and four i want you to make that visual rather than words so just print out little pictures of or draw if you're any way artistic household items a chair a table a lamp a vase whatever it is a teddy bear something food related as well just random items and as they're watching the movie they have to tick off when they see that item in the movie so now it's not completely about the movie it's a more challenge-based or engaging activity okay and then what you could do is come in at the end after they've watched it and say what was your favorite bit of the movie what bit would you like to change if you were the director and you could say cut what bit would you take out and what would you put in instead let's draw that new bit Now it's a little art activity. And how would that change the movie? So you're using much more engaging play around. The screen activity and that's going to offset any of that but otherwise you're doing a huge amount and honestly containing it to 90 minutes at the moment i think you're doing a good
1: a huge job job yeah yeah uh, next question is from an anonymous person my son is five and has developed a sort of vocal tick since november he tends to do it when he's playing content alone playing content alone sorry <laughs> content. When. While falling asleep at night, he does it. And the odd time when he's watching TV, we have ignored it. Any advice?
0: Okay, I actually am hearing more and more parents talking about nervous tics or new behaviours like that. I'm interested. He seems to do it when he's out of his head, you know, when he's kind of in that, you know, drifting off, mindless kind of place of, you know, I'm just in my play or at night, you know, those quieter times in his day. So when he's active and busy and doing um, it's not as obvious as what I'm guessing in order to, you know, be diagnosed as a tick or something that would meet a kind of obsessional quality. It really needs to be there more often than it's not for about a year. OK. okay. And also, again, we're looking at it's there from November. So we're talking about three or four months and It is around the lockdown time, isn't it? You Mm -hmm. know, when even children at five years old are really beginning to show this is too much, it's going on too long. So I would also be curious as he's going back to school and there is some return of peer interaction, structure, predictability, the world is bigger than our homes or our gardens, you know, or our five kilometers, whatever it might be, you know, that actually keep an eye on this and see does it go. OK, it, in terms of ignoring it, you're not ignoring it, first of all, because you've written in about it. So you're very much noticing it. But I guess what you mean is you're not pointing it out to him. So if you see it rather than say, hey, I see you're doing this thing. Why don't you use distraction and redirection and see, does that stop, stop it, it in the moment as well? So if you say, oh, let's play together or, hey, can you come and do this? Or, you know, and again, I don't know what the tick, it's a vocal tick. But if it's when he's falling asleep at night. Does it then stop completely? Like, is there something self-soothing and regulating about it for him? So this is a really short question that's come in. So I'm probably responding with more questions than what came in. But I would certainly, you know, keep an eye on it. If with a return to school, it doesn't disappear or it was to escalate or it was to intensify, then certainly reach out to your GP and talk about it there.
1: Sue, so, uh, I have a three and a half year old, two and a half year old and an eight month old. So it's a busy house. My husband is working seven days a week, long hours. I basically get help putting the older two to bed and I do the rest myself. The youngest two are teething. So the baby's not sleeping and middle child is an emotional wreck. The oldest is having a te- temper tantrums galore. She screeched at me for an over an hour because I asked her to put her shoes on so we could get out for a walk. I make sure that we get out for half for half one one to two walks a day rotate their toys build an indoor soft play for them do arts and crafts obstacle courses practice numbers letters and writing so they get some tablet time too I don't fare well with little sleep and I haven't got a good night's sleep in over six Mm -hmm. weeks my patience is gone what's the best way to stop the tantrums happening and is there any tips on how I can stay patient I've tried I've tried to stop any treat foods I've taken the tablet away I've done a reward chart and the naughty step
0: oh my goodness Sue I just want to reach out and give Sue a big hug yeah That is a lot of pressure. Yeah, that is, and you know, a busy house is one way to put it, but that is, that's overwhelming as well, especially because you're carrying, you know, the lion's load of that, you know, you're doing so much of that yourself. And I think you sum it up so well, because as you were reading that, I was going, when does this woman sleep? When does she sleep? And you're actually telling me you don't. And none of us do well. With no sleep and particularly over six weeks. So, I think you've got to find a, a, some space to charge up yourself. And that might be sitting down with your partner and saying, This isn't sustainable. You know, is there annual leave? Is there anything that could give you a couple of days, a day a week where you get some help? Okay. Now, when we're looking at the reward chart and naughty step, and I hate to add to Sue's stuff at the moment but i'm going to ask you not to do that they're not the right age for that um because reward charts first of all i'm not a huge advocate and anyone listening might say look that really worked for me great if it did in general the risk with a reward chart is it teaches that the behavior is only worth changing if there's a reward on offer yeah it doesn't mean when the reward stops that the behavior change will sustain OK, so just be aware of that. You know, I sometimes I'd like to do something like a behavior jar instead of a reward chart, which means that you take a like a mason jar, jam jar, any jar and fill it up with. um I, I have little colored styrofoam pieces in my one. You could do colored cotton balls. You could colored ping pongs. Don't do marbles because your kids are too young um, because little chokings, but fill it up with something and it starts 100 percent full and everybody is 100 percent good. And the aim is that we stay good over the week, not get good. Whereas yes. a reward chart requires me to get good. Okay. And I think it's just a small change that could make a big difference. But I at their age, cause and effect, even though we feel we're raising evil geniuses sometimes that are running rings around us, cause and effect thinking has not fully developed for any of your children. Really, we look at that coming in over four years old when they can really if I do X, then Y is the outcome if I do Z this happens okay mm-hmm. you know when they're doing that so when you're trying to do these kind of behavior modification techniques that's going to be very very difficult with the age your children are at the i mean anyone who's trying to discipline an under four-year-old you know it's just designed to drive you crazy because you're going to repeat yourself day in day out and again it doesn't mean you don't say no or you don't say stop of course you do those things but you're going to have to do distract distraction and redirection okay you're going to have to come in and say Ideally, come down to their eye level. Do not come down to the eye level of an angry three and a half year old or two and a half year old without holding their hands because you put yourself at the perfect height for a punch. (laughs) Um, So take their little hands in yours and rub circles with your thumbs on their hands or sway their hands side to side as you come down because you're using some of that deep pressure touch, that proprioceptive touch. You're using rhythm and synchrony and you're coming down. Keep a hold of those hands and you say a gentle yet firm no, whatever it is no whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you use redirection and distraction. Here's what I want you to do. And I'm still holding your hands as I redirect you to what I want you to do and get you going on that. And you're going to have to repeat that because of the age they're at. You know, they're really young children. You do repeat yourself. Children learn through repetition and you become predictable by doing that. The naughty step is another one that isn't going to work because the naughty step or the timeout step or the thinking step, whatever you want to call it, kids know what it is. Um, (laughs) But when you put them there, you're basically, taking a child in an emotionally dysregulated state and you're saying sit there on your own and regulate and children under seven do not self-regulate their emotions they co-regulate in response to us or teachers or minders or care important adults in their lives so when they sit there if we if you think they're sitting there and thinking about the thing they did No, they're not. They're looking up and finding a cobweb and they're thinking about spiders and about Charlotte's Web and about what the spider's up to. And they're singing songs and they're looking around. And then we come out and we say, have you something to say to me? And they know every child on the planet knows the way off that step is to say sorry. So they say sorry, but there's no meaning in it. Mm -hmm. So I would say that don't use timeouts. Try to use time ins, if anything. But that means that you separate your child from the action whatever's going on, whatever has kicked off. You separate them from that, but you stay with them. And you engage them in a task that is with you so that they're co-regulating with you. You may or may not talk about the thing that's happened at that stage, but you get them back on track and you return them to what was going on with a new option. Um, With a child who's even this age, actually, you could do three and a half year old. One of the best ways to reset in the moment a busy, overactive brain or a frazzled brain or an agitated brain is to change the field of vision. And the quickest way to do that in the moment is look out of a window because you're looking at something different Mm -hmm. to what's in the room. And while you're with them or holding them, you together say, let's find five things that we can see. I see a tree, I see a cloud, I see a flower, I see the grass, whatever it is. And then you're going to do, you know, four things that you can hear and three things you can touch and two things you could smell and one thing you could taste. You're using your senses and you're doing a five, four, three, two, one countdown while changing the field of vision and you break that moment of tension. And that would be a time in. Mm -hmm. But you're staying with them and they're co-regulating with you. But when our children lose it, you know, when they flip their lids and lose it, you know, we won't stay at a baseline ourselves. You'd be a saint. But if we can stay 20% below them, then we're still setting the heat of the situation and we can bring them down into it. I just really feel that it's not specific to like a three and a half year old having tantrums isn't a concern, isn't unusual. That's what they do. Yes. A two and a half year old having tantrums. That's what they do. Like tantrums are developmentally normal. Just not pleasant. Yes. Okay. You yeah. know, but they are normal. It's just that we've got a mum who's running on empty as well and it's very difficult to kind of listen to this and say yeah i know i know that's it that's it because when you're in the moment and you're exhausted and you just want them to put on your shoes so we can go for a walk just put on your shoes i don't want to debate it it's us who actually needs to recharge so i really think that hard as it is sue i really need you to sit With your partner and work out how you're going to make this work because you're very much alone. Now, maybe when things are returning to more childcare is open or preschool or the ECI Mm -hmm. program is back open, that will give you some reprieve, but you definitely need some self care. Here, because you know, if you ha, what do you how do you give what you haven't got
1: exactly, you
0: know. So, it, it and, so and sometimes you know we think that we're being selfish taking time for ourselves, but actually we're doing our children a really good service if we model good self care and putting ourselves first and taking care of ourselves, because you know the the teething too, the lack of sleep, and the toddler having tantrums. There's so
1: much going on there. They're all interlinked. Right. Um, we'll move on to Amanda my two children aged 7 and 9 have become anxious and fearful in the last few weeks mostly about dying myself my husband dying or them dying in their sleep they're afraid of the dark or to go upstairs or downstairs by themselves my 9 year old says he's always afraid and he can't relax because he's worried all the time I bought them both worry monster teddies and I hope that telling the teddy their worries before bed will help. Bedtime is when the worries are the worst. I also put a photo of myself and my husband in my nine-year-old's room as he says he feels better when he can see my face. What can I say to them to help ease their fears and reassure them about dying? How can I help them cope better with their worries as I can't be with them all the time?
0: Oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, kids can be so intense. Um, And actually, between the age of four and six years old, you know, becoming preoccupied with death is actually quite normal. They, are, You know, they do go through this stage, even if they haven't experienced a loss, they still go through this, you know, question about death and ruminating about death. But, you know, while they're very young, you know, under the age of, ah, look, not to be too prescriptive, but when, you know, j- again, I'm talking about kind of developmental age, not chronological, but under the age of seven, they really don't get the permanence of death. You know, we even see it in how they play, you know, in their little small world play and in their creative play, things die and then they come back to life. Yes. And they keep going and they get, oh, they're not dead anymore. Now they're this and um, because the permanence isn't there. And they do because children are egocentric in their development as well. A lot of that ruminating about death and parents dying also comes back to a question of what's going to happen to me if you die? Yes. Like, wh- how does this play out? And it seems morbid. And as parents, our instinct is to rush in and go, I'm not going to die. That's not going to happen here, but actually it would be better to stick with what the question is and what the feeling is and say, you're wondering, you know, about what would happen to you if dad or I or Mum or I weren't around. Um, So let's have a think about that. What is the plan? I know some parents are going to be like, I don't have a plan. I've never thought about that. But what would be the plan? Who is going to take care of you? And then you want to balance that out by saying, you know, but we're really healthy and well, and we are working hard to stay healthy and well. And most people live to be a really old age before they die. Okay, so you do want to acknowledge the fear that's there. I always think it's best to speak in open, honest, unambivalent language around death. I think if you want to kind of introduce the concept of death, you can point out things like insects that die or you know flowers that die that when something dies it means their heart stops beating they don't breathe anymore and their life is over so we do want to explain death in a very real way and of course within families depending on your personal belief system you may have a a heaven or something else that you locate people in when they die and that can be helpful. And if that's not part of your belief system, you'll have a different type of conversation. But I think we have to be able to talk about difficult things with our children so that it's not so difficult for them to think about it. When they're coming closer, though, to, you know, nine years old, they are grasping death in a you know, more like an adult in that they get it's irreversible. Okay, they get like there is a permanence piece that they do get, but they're still thinking around that kind of seven to nine age. They're still thinking it only happens to others it doesn't okay. happen to me. It's when they're older than nine that their awareness is continuing to mature and they get that it can happen to their loved ones then. And they tend to have more questions and really kind of specific questions about the biological aspects and what happens to your body afterwards and where does it go? And mm-hmm. they might even ask really detailed medical type questions about the body after that age. So their, their understanding of death is something that tends to open up four to six years old and then it grows and develops right up to kind of the end of middle childhood you know nine to twelve years old before they have a really refined notion of it and even in adolescence you know they can tend to romanticize death because so much of adolescent tv and you know books and themes are about you know vampires and the occult and witches and you know that where you die but you don't die Mm -hmm. you know so that whole idea of death it still evolves right the way through their lives so as parents we just always stick with the question that's asked, be it about death or anything else. Like, don't think that your child asks you a question about death and you go, here it comes, here it comes, and I, I forgot a script, and I take a deep breath, and I bombard them with information they didn't ask or didn't seek. But if there's a very specific question, then I give that very specific answer. And then you can check, have you any other questions about this? And they might say, no, that's fine. And a few weeks later, you might get another question. So always stick with the question that's asked. Use very clear, unambiguous language. Like, don't say things like, gone to sleep and not waking up <laughs> don't say past no longer with us we've lost whoever granddad granny we've lost that because children are quite literal and they will think well if they're lost why aren't you looking for them
1: Yes, yeah, And yeah. what do
0: you mean you can go to sleep and never wake up? That's terrifying. <laughs> so it's much better that we use appropriate language. It, because often it's us parents who have the difficulty with that. We just don't want to talk about it. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's a difficult topic. So actually having a chat between yourselves, make sure the first time you talk about this isn't directly to your child, but you've actually tried this out loud so you're not tripping over your words as well. Yeah. Um And get onto the same page. But I think as well, you know, if this is something that has recently come up during the pandemic, there is a lot of conversation about death and numbers of death and people getting sick and dying. So you do want to put this in context as well and just, you know, ask them how they're thinking and feeling about it and how they're making sense of it. And just, you know, it could be to do with what's going on around us. So be aware of maybe what they're overhearing with news bulletins things like that
1: Daily figures Yeah We have three more questions I'm going to try and get through them a little bit quicker I have an extremely emotionally unstable eight year old woman at The World is Wonderful the next she is saying I hate my life which I find so hard and frightening Um, uh, there's not much background detail could it be the pandemic or hormones or puberty or should she bring her like someone to uh, should she bring her to someone like a kinesiologist or how should she respond in general
0: yeah, I mean, you're saying, you know, could it be the pandemic hormones puberty? I mean, yes, it could. And maybe no, it isn't, you know, because yes. I, I really don't know what I, you know, this age group is, is a key time of significant growth and development across, you know, cognitive, social. Emotional, physical faculties—huge amount of changes are going on in that eight-year-old, nine-year-old um, age group. And um, so, you tend to, because it's a time of great flux. You know, they're they're beginning to be able to grasp more advanced concepts about logic and reasoning. But that part of the brain responsible for that—that neocortex—is still very immature. So you can see these flashes of temper all of a sudden or emotional meltdowns all of a sudden and you're going whoa where did that come Mm -hmm. from and it's because there's so much change going on so some of this might be developmentally normal and I'm just hearing a lot of fear for this parent in here you know I'm finding it hard and frightening and what does this mean when you ask me about a kinesiologist I'll be honest I don't know a whole lot about kinesiology so I can't advise you on that but if you're concerned about your child especially at this age their emotional well-being it might be worth reaching out to a child psychotherapist who could actually give you some advice consultation meet with your eight-year-old and see if there's something else going on here but i think you can also respond to her by reframing it using acceptance and empathy you know i think you know when she says things like i hate my life don't get into reassuring her but say I'm wondering what it is that's frustrating you. I'm wondering what is it about your life that's really bugging you right now, and maybe that's something we could work on together. Yeah, be so specific. that be specific, exactly. So don't get kind of you hate your life. What does this mean? But actually, go. What is it you you're having a difficulty with, and really drill down into it because you're then also asking her to move from those generic sweeping statements to, to something specific. very specific that may well be fixable. But
1: if you're concerned over and above what I've said, then I would suggest a child it's psychotherapist Yeah, Um Kira, my 10 year old has awful anxiety at night since lockdown started. He won't go to bed on his own. is complaining of a weird feeling in his tummy. He gets upset easy and he seems to be losing confidence. He finds it hard to keep concentration in homeschooling. He gets very irritated. We get him to walk and cycle during the day in our 5k we're just wondering is anxiety common for children this age in the current situation or can you give me any tips now to deal with it
0: it's super common
1: similar yeah
0: exactly very like one of the uh, earlier questions you know i i think you know when you're talking about it's very hard to keep his concentration with the homeschooling you know i'll get in trouble now for saying this but i'm going to say park that okay if that's going to be a flashpoint of stress just Downplay that at the moment and attend to his emotions first, attend to the emotional struggle because actually it's very difficult to learn when you're emotionally. Yeah. hyper aroused and in that state of anticipatory arousal like anticipatory arousal is when you're triggered by anxiety or fear or worry and it makes you into this little emotional meerkat you know where you're just watching around for signs that you're right to feel the way you do it's a bit like you know you know, when you have a bruise and you know it hurts but you keep touching it to make sure it still hurts you know it's exactly like that
1: why do we do that I do that all the time
0: everyone does that you know we do like in, you know, like a cut or a paper cut and you go mm, yeah still sore yeah. and intelligently we know leave it alone it will heal but that's not how that emotion emotional emotional compulsion works so i think if you know the biggest favor we will do our teachers in all of this is that we return our children to school in as emotionally healthy a space as we possibly can so really attend to his emotions when they're all up in their heads and anxiety and ruminating go back to very early developmental play go back to sensory play messy tactile play make slime uh make scented play-doh give an attend give him the ingredients plus if you know a little bit of food dye and some either scented oils or fresh herbs or sliced lemons or cocoa powder instead of the flour for the play-doh so he can make chocolate play-doh and he can make his own special play-doh and then do a little bit of you know sculptionary with that put some label a little objects written on bits of paper into a bowl pick one out and he has to manipulate the play-doh to make that item what
1: is that sort of sensory play doing
0: well it's taking him out of that busy head and down into the now moments in his body okay it's really that touch that exploration with the skin And it's about reminding me that I have a skin that contains me and marks where I end and the world and people outside of me begin. It's a grounding. It just takes me out of that anxious place. And it's we know ourselves like when we're stressed or anxious. As adults, we tend to go for massage, Mm -hmm. facials, blow dries. Back when we could now, Um, all of those things. I know (laughs) everyone's like, I really wish I could do that now. But you know, those are also sensory. experiences so we know that that's in a way of lowering those stress hormones lowering the cortisol in the body and brain and just relaxing us that kind of play is going to be really really helpful you know he's at that age you're saying is it normal Mm -hmm. at his age where you know his brain is in a constant state of flux daily experiences are the fodder Um, that are going to feed his development and nurture his development. So, you know, for children this age, it's their environment that's really, really important. So getting out and moving and that exercise and activity, but also play is the means to creating the types of daily experiences he needs to enable brain changes. So get him playing. And particularly in this age, we tend to think that they're done with that creative, imaginative play. And we'd stop playing with them in that way. And we see that, you know, they do bikes and scooters and gaming. Play patterns definitely change. But actually, when given the opportunity to play in a creative, imaginative way, children this age do migrate towards it as much as the other types of play. So do something like, if you were president of the whole world, what three things would you change first and why? You know, so immediately that's about imagination Mm -hmm. and creativity. It's also about critical thinking and problem solving. And because I'm president of the world, I have to engage in empathy and thinking about perspectives of others. So a whole lot's going on in that. So any activities like that,
1: really, really good for him. And finally, I, Anne, I am a grandparent who's minding her five-year-old grandson and seven-year-old granddaughter who continually ask how long the virus is here and say that it's here too long. They want so bad to be able to go back to doing normal things days out. They get upset about it and they cry. My heart breaks for all the kids. How do we explain in simple terms and reassure them that this will pass? Yeah, I mean, don't we all wish it? It's yeah. gone on too long and we all wish
0: it was over. So I think you start by saying that, going, yeah, me too. I also think it's gone on too long and, you know, it's really hard doing a lot of acceptance and empathy today like it's all coming back to that so I think what you you can't give them a a strict timeline because the honest answer is we don't
1: know but I think it's funny isn't it like I was watching Ireland Mm. AM today and they were grilling the Tawnista about when are we getting like Alan Hughes was going at the Tawnista like when are we getting out of this and just like this five-year-old seven-year-old and the Tawnista was like Alan (laughs) like engaging in empathy I know (laughs) but I can't tell you. I don't have those answers. It's so funny that, like, what you're saying is also what the government are doing to adults. But also
0: what us adults are saying saying, and struggling with. The children are struggling with what we're struggling with. This is so relatable. As our parents being like, when are we getting
1: out of this? And they're like, I know it's hard. It's really difficult. Here are the things we are looking at, but we cannot tell you when. (laughs) And and also,
0: you know, to to paraphrase Atonishta and say, you know, here are the things we can now do. Yeah. And to look at the things that we can do and also look at how we are moving forward. And, you know, it's not moving as quick as we'd like, but these are really tricky things. <laughs> and we can always blame or as my little one calls them, the Corona vice. Oh. Um, so you can blame the Coronos on everything um, and say, you know, that we're working really hard and we're learning a lot about it. And look, things are getting better, but we're not there yet. But look, here's what we can do. And let's make a list of things that we're going to do when this is over and Oh, that's I don't have a magic answer for this one. I wish I did because I probably get asked that question myself in my own life by my own child that age
1: every single day
0: waking up. Are they gone now? Are they gone now? And the answer is
1: not right now, but we're getting there. Yeah, (laughs) I'm absolutely exhausted from saying we are getting there as well. But it's hard. It's hard for kids to accept that in the same way that it's hard for us to accept. Like we know in our heart of hearts that the government can't give us a date. They can't get rid of it. But we still want that certainty because uncertainty is just exhausting and frustrating and depleting for adults in the same way that all these right. All these question askers have been saying my kids are struggling. And I'm struggling and we're all yeah. struggling. It's really difficult, isn't it's it? It's really,
0: really difficult, but it's also so understandable. Like we're we're having a difficulty with a difficult thing. Like that's very appropriate. Not pleasant, appropriate, but appropriate. Yes,
1: but I guess the appropriateness isn't a solace. Well, I don't find it a solace. I'm like, no. okay, I know that it's normal, but it's still frustrating. <laughs> it is because we've been trying so
0: hard to maintain a high degree of normality in these times like we've been
1: trying to keep working that's the thing why can't we just let it all fall why can't we all just be like look just let's all just have a tantrum (laughs) <laughs> you know, like this, because try, it's exhausting trying to go on and be like, "Yep, yeah, stiff upper lip. We're all in it together. This is this is going to be fine. Well, Let's keep positive. And positivity is sometimes toxic. Like when you. Well, it when, is
0: if it's contrived, because yes, if, you're if you're trying you're denying, to perform
1: positivity, yeah, which then, always
0: on. you know, but that's that's just it. This isn't always about fake it till you make it. You mm-hmm. know, actually, uh, you know, you mentioned having a, a tantrum and I'm thinking, yeah, why not? Like having a good cry. A yeah. really good cathartic cry one not every day, but Don't once in a while. Do you know right <laughs> now? How are you
1: feeling? <laughs> so I but, had therapy yesterday, it's fine. <laughs> right
0: now, you know, if you're saying, Yeah, I'm I'm really at that point of bubbling over, bubble over. But those points come so frequently in the day they're not like, I think it's because we're not releasing the tension. You know, and you know, everything has we have a saturation point. There's mm-hmm. only so much like if you think of yourself like a sponge, you can soak up so much and then you're not a sponge anymore. You're just a soggy lump. yeah. And then you've got to pick up and wring out that sponge so you can keep functioning like a sponge again. And there is that point where we have to kind of let loose, mm-hmm. let go, release everything that we're holding so that we can keep functioning and that bit of self-care and i think self-care becomes that kind of twee thing that you go Mm -hmm. oh self-care do you mean taking the dogs out for a walk no because actually part of being a dog owner is that you have to walk the dogs that's a responsibility it might have a secondary gain that it's good for you but you have to be doing something that is for you even if it means that you're having that hot shower or a bath late at night even if it is that you don't watch screens at night but you read a book or you get out for a walk or people may have seen on my social media i've been skipping. For the month of February. And it was absolute torture the first week because I, you know, it was humbling experience. How many minutes do you skip for? 10. But 10 unbroken skipping minutes. It's a lot. Like- when you haven't skipped since the skipathon days of your primary school years is like a humbling experience to discover how unfit you actually are. Um, but it's amazing. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. And it was about fun and laughter and, yes, getting fit and healthy as well. But at the same time, it was more about doing something that I used to love. I loved doing that. When I was a kid, I loved skipping. So actually finding the thing that you love doing and doing that. And I'm not going to say, now, go out there and bake all the banana breads every which way known to mankind or do your sourdough. But look at things that do bring you joy. And if it's baking, bake. And if it's painting, paint. And if it's knitting, knit. And if it's running, run or skipping. Do something that is
1: just for you. Joanna, thank you so, so very much. If people want to find you now, okay, this is, I, I, I'm going to speak on Joanna's behalf, okay? Joanna has an Instagram account. I follow her on Instagram. Loads of people follow her on Instagram. You've heard her on News Talk. I am always telling you on my Instagram, do not send me your COVID questions if I have not put up a question box. It's not fair. It's my boundary. Joanna has a boundary too. Do not send her your queries on Instagram. It's not fair. It's not appropriate. If people do want to get in touch with you mm-hmm. in, and they want to find a professional way of doing that, how can they find you?
0: So there is a link. If you, if it is Instagram that you're, you know, following me on, there is a link in my bio to the website, and you can. There's a contact page there, or email info at sulliv.com. S O L A M H dot com. And if you have a parenting question, like a specific question, a bit like today, you know, certainly email that to the parenting slot on News Talk, you know, afternoon at newstalk.com. And I'll definitely get that.
1: Great. So you also have to listen to News Talk. And she's there as in the same way that Luke and Owen McGee are on. They're on very frequently every week, and you can send them your questions and they will get to them. Also, Joanne has a book. I have three books. Three books. Fifteen, but they're all fifteen minute parenting. <laughs> yeah, they are aren't for they? different age groups. Yes. So there's zero to seven, eight to twelve in the teenage years. Yes. So she has a book called Fifteen Minute Parenting and there is one for every age group. <laughs> um and a lot of the tips that you've heard today are in there. And if you want to read them and get more, you know, a more kind of robust version of it, those books are brilliant. They're available where all books are, aren't Absolutely. They? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they're full of those practical
0: play activities as well. You know, if you're kind of going, yeah, I got my play muscles are a bit stiff. I need to work those out. There's loads of things in there t- around play.
1: Great. Thank you so much for My joining. pleasure. Thanks, Thanks you for so having much. me. I bet you I'm going to get loads of questions now again. I won't be sending them <laughs> on to you. <laughs> Thank you for joining me for that episode. Thank you and thank you for supporting the podcast. For those of you who've signed up to Headstuff Plus for extra bonus material I'm really grateful to you and if you want to do it you can uh, go to headstuffpodcast.com Our graphic design is by Kahlo Gara. Our music is by Only Ruin and we are produced by Alan Bennett at the Podcast Studios and we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks for tuning in.